Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this unusual chapter, this uh, dark night for Saul, would you, uh, by your power, pierce every soul here so that we might learn from and not end up like Saul. In Jesus' name, amen. Eugene Peterson is a great writer, died last year, a pastor. And early in his career, he worked for a church in New York City. He was an associate pastor in a Presbyterian church there. And while he was there, he befriended uh, a man named Willie Ossa. Willie Ossa was the janitor in this church. And Willie Ossa had uh, been, been an immigrant or was an immigrant from Germany. And he had personally experienced some hardships from the church in Germany because they had caved to the pressure of Hitler while he was in power. And his own pastor actually became part of the Nazi party. So Willie fled to America. He landed in New York City. And uh, even though he was bitter with the church, he found himself working as a janitor. And so one day, as Peterson was trying to befriend Willie, he found out that Willie was actually an accomplished painter. So they began to have this conversation about it and said, well, what kind of things do you paint? Well, I mostly paint portraits. So Peterson, in an effort to try to, you know, find a way to have a conversation, said, well, how would you like to do my portrait? And so Willie agreed to it and just said, hey, we'll, we'll meet five or six times or however long it takes to do the sitting and do the portrait, but you have to agree not to see it until I'm finished. And so Peterson agreed, and they sat for several weeks. And one day, while um, Peterson was sitting there, Willie's wife came in. And she came in behind Willie and could see the portrait. And as soon as she saw it, she said in German, crank, crank, which means sick. He looks sick. Why why did you paint him to look so sick? A few weeks later, finally finished the painting. He turned it on to Eugene Peterson, and he had a gaunt face. He had a grim expression He had sort of cold, distant eyes. And he was looking at it. Willie told Peterson, he said, I've wanted to paint a portrait of you because I had been in German churches where the love and the priority of God got squeezed out of people. And I wanted to show you what you would look like if the love and priority of God got squeezed out of your soul. Now imagine as a pastor, having that hanging in your office. Imagine if it was a picture of you. What what does your soul look like today? I mean, if you could have somebody that would paint it, we could all see what we look like, but what would the painting be of our soul? What if you had a painting of your soul and what it looked like if, if the love and priority of God had gotten squeezed out of it and it was hanging in your hallway and, and you went by it every day on your way to work or every day on your way to school. It would be this haunting reminder to make sure that God stayed as a priority because you wouldn't want to ever end up looking like this picture. 
Sadly, today in chapter 28, we have a portrait of a man whose love and priority of God had gotten squeezed out of him. And it's not a, it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of a, of a sick man. And what happened with Saul is the love and priority of God that he had at one point got squeezed out. And what we learn is that, that now Saul, the love and priority for Saul is Saul. He's the main feature in the film of Saul's life. It, everything revolves around Saul. At the center of his universe is Saul. And so we will look at this, but before we get to chapter 28, let's make sure we understand the background to Saul's story. Saul was made the first king of Israel, and he showed some early signs of success. But by the time we get to chapter 15, we find out that Saul really is for Saul. If you can remember back at that point, Saul was uh, told by Samuel, which is by God, to go and kill the Amalekites. The Amalekites had always been enemies of Israel. They had harmed Israel in many ways. They were brutal to themselves and other people. And God had waited hundreds of years to punish the Amalekites. And he said, finally, this is it, Saul. I want you to go destroy the Amalekites. And I don't want you to bring anything back. They might have some things that look valuable, but it's like I don't want any of their mark to be on my people. And so Saul obediently goes to war. He obediently destroys most of the Amalekites. But towards the end of the battle, he thinks, well, you know, some pretty valuable stuff over here. I mean, some stuff I can use, stuff we can use. And I'm sure God won't mind if we just take some of these valuables. So Saul foolishly, believe that it was okay to obey God halfway. What, what do you say as a parent? What's halfway obedience? What, are that, what is that called? Disobedience, right? Halfway obedience is disobedience. But Saul in his mind, and maybe you can appreciate this, is that he thought, well, I did some of the good things. I, I went to war. I did some, I, I put these people in their place. But I mean, I mean, is God really going to care? Is he even really going to notice? I mean, I've gotten some sheep and some goats and, you know, a few things. What, what's the big deal? Turns out it's a pretty big deal. But as soon as you start down the path of halfway obedience in your soul, it starts to look grim. You start losing that portrait of somebody who's got God as their priority and We see Samuel comes to Saul in chapter 15. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Did you not understand, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice? I wonder if that's ever in your head. Well, I'm not obeying completely, but man, I'm making some sacrifices for God. And somehow in in that thinking, that comes out okay for you. That's not okay. Listen to what Saul has to say. For rebellion like this, this halfway disobedience or halfway obedience is just like the sin of witchcraft. I mean, I just took a few goats and cattle. I mean, that's not like witchcraft, is it? Yeah, it's like witchcraft. Again, I wonder for you if... If you've ever thought, well, that's just kind of a small thing. It's not like I do witchcraft. Maybe it is. Maybe it is like that. 
some little disobedience, God can see the trajectory of for Saul's soul. And he goes on to say, sadly, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you. Samuel turned to leave and Saul caught a hold of the hem of Samuel's robe, which is why I think he recognizes Samuel in this vision. 28, he tore it. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand today. So Saul replaced the priority and love of God for the priority and love of himself. And this painting gets to be to get started in chapter 15. And one of the things that you notice, one of the characteristics in this painting, in this portrait for Saul, is you would look at a man driven now by fear. Chapter 15, Saul is afraid of the people that he's leading. Chapter 17, Saul is afraid of Goliath. Chapter 18, Saul is afraid of David. Chapter 28, we see Saul is afraid of the Philistines. And in verse 20 of chapter 28, Saul is afraid of his own death. So when the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, it's replaced by fear, self-centered paranoia, which is really amazing for this man, Saul. He's a military general. He's been to battles. He's a head taller than everybody in the crowd. This is a man's man. And yet his portrait says something different. Inside, he's driven, he's driven by fear. And he's afraid because the Lord has stopped listening to him. Look at verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Verse 15. Saul talks to Samuel and he says, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. What a sad moment. You can go back and look for yourself, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is exactly what Samuel said would happen. The people wanted a king in in their own image, and Samuel saying, don't get a king, just follow after the Lord. And they say, no, we want a king, we have to have a king. And Samuel says, when you have a king, he's going to take. That's going to be one of the characteristics of the king. He's not going to give you stuff, he's going to take things from you. And there will come a day when you call on the Lord and he will not answer. And now Saul, he's eating this bitter fruit from many years ago. This state of fear and desperation for Saul, he he makes a fatal decision. It's been said that when you're in a crisis, you find out a lot about yourself. When you're in a crisis, you see what is your default setting of your heart. You know, that you're under pressure and and you just have to naturally react. And you find out, well, what is the natural reaction when you're under pressure? And we find out for Saul, his natural reaction is to, to save himself. It's very different than David, who's been called a man after God's own heart. You can, again, look at this later, but chapter 13 of Psalm, David is in a crisis situation. And you hear it right at the very beginning, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Ever had that feeling? I mean, how much longer is it going to be, Lord? It feels like you've forgotten me. How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? In other words, how, must, how long do I have to just rely on myself? I'm, I'm in sorrow all day. How long are my enemies going to be exalted over me? And he goes on, and then finally in verse 5, at the very end, he says, But 
I trusted in you. I'm trusting in you. See, even when the crisis hits for David, he does cry out and say, I don't get it, but he's crying out towards the Lord. When Samuel's under, hit, under crisis, he's crying out towards himself. He doesn't have any other place to go. I'll never forget this conversation I had with a high school guy who had gone to camp with me when he was in high school at New Hanover High School. And you know, I thought he was moving with and towards the Lord, but then I ran into him several years later and we had coffee together and he said, hey, you know, the whole Christian thing, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I was like, well, what are you? I don't know. I don't believe in anything. I said, okay, well, do you still pray? Well, yeah, I pray. Who do you pray to? He paused and he said, well, I guess myself. When the love of God gets squeezed out, when the priority of God gets squeezed out, it gets replaced. It gets replaced with himself. And so Saul, in his desperation, you see he's for himself. And he, you see it because he goes to this medium or witch or necromancer, this person who calls people from the dead. Now, when you get to verses 8 through 19, this is one of the most unusual passages in all the Bible. And when you read through it, and then you read through several commentaries like I did this week, you actually end up with the same number of questions of when you started. Because nobody's really sure what all this means and exactly what's happening. But I want to just go kind of comb through this, and we'll pick up a few important strands here. First of all, let's reread 8, 9, and 10. So Saul disguised himself. He put on garments, two other men go with him, and they go to this woman at night, and he looks at this woman and says, divine for me a spirit by which you're going to bring up from the dead whoever I name to you. And the woman then says, well, I don't know if you know Saul. Of course, that's funny because Saul's sitting there. He's cut off all the mediums and the necromancers from the dead. It seems like you're trying to set a trap for me. You're trying to trick me. No, no. Saul says, I swear by the Lord, no punishment will come to you. It's like we're at the very last moment of a train wreck. And these last three verses are the last few warning signs. You know, you get to the train track, the the arms come down, the lights go off, the bells start ringing to say, you know, in every way, you got to stop because you're going to have a head-on collision with a train. And all these are coming down, and Saul blows through each one. Verse 8, first of all, he disguises himself, and he comes at night. Anytime you're hiding, anytime you're doing something where you hope nobody else knows it, you're in danger. You know this. This is not rocket science. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this. Just any time you're hiding, any time you hope, I hope nobody else sees me here. You should just know my soul is in danger. First warning sign. Verse 8, very interesting. The woman knows the law, and she actually repeats back to Saul, even though she doesn't realize it's Saul at this point. She repeats back the law, Deuteronomy 18. Let no one be found among you who practices sorcery, engages in witchcraft, who consults the dead. 
So Saul had laid down a law, a correct law, and now some years later, he's not following that. Anytime, anytime you make excuses for behavior that you previously wouldn't have ever done before, you're in danger. The 55-year-old Paul Phillips looks back and says, you know, the 35-year-old Paul Phillips never would have done that. I'm in danger. Saul misses that. And here's what I can't believe, verse 10. He actually looks at the woman who's a witch and swears by the Lord's name. And notice in your book, in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. He uses Yahweh's personal name. By Yahweh's life, no harm is... I mean, I just don't understand how he can miss this coming out of his own mouth. And so what you see just in these few verses is a very ugly portrait. Someone who was previously connected to God, he's gotten so far away. How do you get that far away? I would suggest a couple of things. One, you and I severely underestimate the power of sin. You're so close to God at some point, but then you get so far away. And at least one of the reasons is you severely underestimate the power of sin and you severely overestimate your own power. Several years ago, Billy Graham was doing a talk show with Larry King. And Larry King asked Graham, hey, are you ever tempted? I mean, your team, they're always on the road, your, your evangelistic crew. Are you, you guys feel temptation, Billy? And the Bill, Billy told Graham a story about two of his associates that were setting up for a crusade in Paris. And these two men were by themselves. They were out one night in Paris after dinner and lights came on and they could just feel the the nighttime attractions of Paris. So they move back towards their hotel, and then the next day they get up and they have breakfast with Billy and each other. And one of the men says, Billy, I I want you to know I could feel the temptations getting so intense in my heart last night. I just want to be accountable to you. So I want you to know I used the room key, back then the hard room key, to lock myself in from the inside And I threw my key out the window. Now, if you think that's crazy, you've severely underestimated the power of sin. And you've severely overestimated your power to fight against it. See, this is a smart man. He can see the signals coming down. He sees them coming saying, hey, I've got to take some action. I've got to do something now because if I don't do something now, I'm going to have a head-on collision with the train. And so in what seems like a crazy but great move, he throws his key out the window. And I just wonder if there's something in your life now, you need to throw the key out the window. You need to throw your computer or your phone out the window. Oh, I mean, you can't live without a phone. Oh, yeah, you, you know you can. Is there something you're tolerating to say, well, you know, it's no big deal. I mean, doing a lot of good things. Is there some, do you feel this story running through your soul? 
If we're starting to paint a portrait now, right now of you or me, what, what would it look like? Now, we're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks when we get to the end of the story. But a couple of things that you're supposed to notice as you read through, because this is one whole story, not just individualized sermons, is you're supposed to see a contrast between David and Saul happening here. And you're also supposed to see Saul changing especially turning at 15, turning away from the Lord. And Saul, he ends up turning into, obviously not literally, but he ends up turning into the serpent, which is why in the last chapter he gets his head cut off. But I want you to notice a few scales here that come upon Saul, verse 9 and 10. Just think with me. Verse 9, a woman is telling Saul the law. She's saying, I hear what you're saying, Saul, but it's not right for me to do this. It's against God's word. Where where should you be thinking right now? Where did a conversation happen like this before? Saul's response, as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you. You hear Genesis 3 there? Saul's turned into the serpent. He's, the woman is trying to say, no, you know what's right is this. And he's saying, oh, you know, surely you're not going to die. This is the exact same thing. And what's important about this is evil has a way of repeating itself. It doesn't have a way of repeating itself just through the Bible. It has a way of repeating itself into our lives. Tell me if you're familiar with these conversations that come to my head. Come on, Paul. No punishment's going to come to you. I mean, you're the pastor of the church. Look at all the good that you've done. Look at all the sacrifices that you've made. It's only one time. Plus, it's the last time. And no one's ever going to know. Anybody familiar with those kinds of conversations? See, evil repeats itself. Has the same sort of tune And when you hear these conversations in your head, which will happen, you're supposed to say, I'm in danger. I got to take some action here or else I'm going to have this head-on collision. So we get to this collision in verse 11 through 14, which is, again, probably the strangest few verses here about this lady and Samuel actually coming back from the dead, we think. Here's one commentator's thought on it. The Bible tells us nothing about the practices of mediums and necromancers, except that it's forbidden. So you're not supposed to try to read into how you might do this here. You're supposed to understand that whatever that is, it's forbidden. It's a mistake to draw any conclusions from these few verses. Did the woman have the power to bring Samuel back for the dead? The text doesn't say so. We know she seems surprised to actually see Samuel. It seems to me far more likely that the Lord sent Samuel to Saul just as he did on another different occasion, send Moses and Elijah to Jesus. The dark powers of this woman, if she possesses possesses such power, appear to be irrelevant. So you want to draw too many conclusions. 
especially about this woman's power. But one thing that is relevant is the conversation Samuel and Saul have. Look at this, verse chapter 15. This is one of the most painful, in a chapter of painful verses, this is one of the most painful. Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me from bringing me up? Now just listen to Saul. What's Saul's priority? I, I am in great distress. Hear that? Saul is so lost in himself. He doesn't even see how wrapped around the axle he is of himself. I am in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me. God has turned away from me. He answers me no more. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me, what shall I do? I mean, in a half a verse, he has seven references to himself. And he doesn't even see it. So Saul, in a very quick way, gives him a reorientation. Verse 16, Saul, you know what your problem's with God. Then he tells, or he reminds Saul of the big problem he has. Isn't it interesting? He goes back 15 years to chapter 15 when Saul was disobedient and brought things out of the battle of the Amalekites. Of all the things he could have said, he says, hey, I've I've already said this to you. I said it to you 15 years ago when I was alive. You disobeyed the Lord. And we're stuck on that point, Saul. You made excuses You blame shifted on other people. You walked away from God. And now you're trying to just say, it's like that didn't happen. I'm just going to enter back in with God and I'm not going to address this problem. And Samuel is saying, no, Saul, you're stuck. You were having a dialogue with the Lord and you walked out of the room and you think you can just move on and have another dialogue. It doesn't work that way. God's waiting for you to come back to this point and say, I repent of doing this. Lord, please help me. I can't get out of this something. But Samuel, Saul refuses to do it. And Samuel says, you're stuck. Now, some of us know this just in our own interpersonal relationships. You get stuck. Big blow up happens. Words are exchanged. Something's said that's hard. And this relationship that was together starts veering apart. And you might be cordial, you might be nice, but really you both know something happened back here. And you can't move forward until you go back and say, we've got to somehow have some conclusion. We've got to have something happen back here in order to move forward. And what Samuel's saying to Saul, and what I think this is saying to us is, you can get stuck with the Lord. And it's possible that somebody here is stuck. Something happened. Some disappointment, some discouragement, some bewilderment. I don't know what it is, but you walked out. I mean, not physically, because you come and you sort of do the things. You sing a little bit and you give some, but really, it's just a superficial thing. And You may need to go back and say, God, there's something happened back here, and I need to get unstuck, and I've got to repent for, for me being about me in these places and not trusting in you. But Saul doesn't do that, and he waits until it's too late. And my hope is that you won't wait till it's too late.
verse 19, this last heavy statement by Samuel. You and your sons. You and your sons. Tomorrow, you're all going to be dead. Now, who is he talking about? Jonathan. Who's my favorite character in 1 Samuel? Jonathan. This guy, he's the best. He's the bravest. He's the one who's trusting the Lord. He's, he's the one that's getting out of the, the fear of Saul's cave. He's the one who's by David's side. He's the one who's saying, David, when you become the king, even though I should be the king, I'm going to be your right-hand man. I'm going to be your armor bearer. I mean, there's everything great about Jonathan, but Jonathan's going down. And when I'm reading this this week in my study, door closed, I go, dang it. Please hear me. Your sin can bring down other good people, especially your family. Jonathan is not in any way responsible for this activity. But this one man's activity brings down his whole family, brings down an empire, could bring down a nation. And you and me, when you think foolishly, this isn't hurting anybody. Nothing could be more foolish. You could bring down your whole family. You could bring down a whole church. You could bring down a whole business. This is what Saul's doing. He's bringing down his family because Saul is for Saul. Very odd ending to the story. The story is very odd. Ends with this weird meal. Saul in so much distress, he can't even get off the floor. It's understandable. He found out he's going to die tomorrow, and so is his family. And this woman, who's a witch, comes by and says, look, let me cook a meal for you at least. And so he agrees, and then they eat, verse 25, and just this last phrase. And then they went away, and it was night. Yeah, it was night. It wasn't just night time. It's too late for Saul. It's got a dark soul. He misses all the warning signs. He's devastated that he's going to die. He's not devastated that he's disobedient. And if you took time to really ponder this last meal, you would make a connection to another last supper. Judas. Man so close to Jesus. Think about the things he got to witness firsthand. Think about the things he got to do. And he's sitting in this little private dinner table and he's, the, he's one of the ones who seems so close, but like Saul, he's so far away. John chapter 13, verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Yep. It's too late for Judas. It was too late for Saul. I don't want it to be too late for you. That's why some of you are here this morning. It's not an evangelistic sermon. 
If you're here and you don't know the Lord, there's a better sermon for you to hear. It's for people who think they're on the inside. People who think they're sitting at the dinner table. But there's now some place that you're halfway obeying. And you know you're in danger now. And maybe it seems like a little thing right now, but 15 years later, you'd be doing things you never thought you would have done 15 years ago. You're on that track unless you stop. Maybe you've severely underestimated the strength of sin. Maybe you've severely overestimated your own power and strength. And if you don't get a different estimation, you're on your way in a collision course. And maybe you're stuck. You could be stuck with God for a week. You could be stuck for 50 years. And just now is the time to get unstuck. To go back and say, God, I mean, it didn't turn out my way and I've been angry at you for 40 years. Which has made me God. And I'm repenting of that. You know, Saul's not the only one who gets stuck. Saul's not the only one who's so close to God and then drifts away. David, David, a man after God's own heart. In a brief moment, David is for David. What makes a difference for David is how he responds to the Lord. And I want to close just by reading a couple of verses and giving you maybe 30 seconds just to sit quietly And you wrestle together with whatever God has put on your mind. Psalm 51. David cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I'm praying that just even as we're sitting here this sermon, some of our portraits are changing. Changing from fear to faith. Changing from something grim to something joyful because you've intersected our lives with this dark moment in Saul's life and, and, and we don't want to end up like Saul. We don't want to end up until our soul is in the dark and it's too late to turn around. Lord, we're so grateful that even on the night of your betrayal, you are telling these disciples It's not too late because of grace. Because you are going to live in darkness. You're going to give your blood and you're going to give your body. And you're going to live through the darkness of the tomb. And come out so that we might live in the light. Would you take these common elements and minister to the souls of your people? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a believer, somebody who wants to, struggling towards 
walking with Jesus, I pray that you'd come and remember the grace of God. If you're living for yourself or something or someone else, just stay and think about where that's leading you to. Ushers will come and music will come on. You come when they meet you. It's a heavy sermon. It's my good Mother's Day sermon. But it's necessary, critical, critical for your soul. Hebrews 13, 17 says that the the elders, the pastors of the church have to give an account for your soul. I don't want you to end up like Saul. I don't want you to be so close But then something happens and you just begin to drift away and then you get so hard, it's just too late. So it's not too late. Today, it's not too late. It's not too late because of God's amazing grace. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.